0: Hello, and welcome to Pontifax. I'm Fry.
1: And I'm Bree, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 50, Pope Felix III. We
0: have made it to episode 50! I can't believe it. This isn't our 50th pope, though.
1: It is not our 50th pope. He is our 48th pope. It's awesome because it's this nice round number of being episode 50, and he's our first medieval pope, so it is, it just lined up so nicely. So let's get into Felix III. Felix was born in Rome to a family of the senatorial rank, which is the highest class of the non-imperial family, and his father, also called Felix, was a priest in the parish church of Fasciola. Now, Remember, at this time, priests were definitely allowed to marry so long as it was to a virgin and it was your first and only marriage, so it's not scandalous that his father was also a priest. And this is a really, really important fact for us to note here because we also know that by the time Felix was elected to the papacy, he had also been married and had a family. This is a first.
0: Okay, so he's also got a family.
1: Yeah. It's a first in the sense that, you know, Peter had a wife, but this is the first since the church definitely gained a structure. And this is also very clearly not an Anastasius slash innocent, you know, spiritual son kerfuffle either.
0: I don't know about Peter. I think he just like wandered off and left his wife and maybe... Yes? Didn't pay her any child support. Just wandered off. Church now. I
1: retweeted a thread that was on Twitter not too long ago about someone who was writing, like, the Gospel of Peter's wife. And it was basically, and lo, my husband was a dingus. And I was like, yes! So go back and find that, because, oh, it's fabulous. But we know, in this case, that Felix actually had a family, and he actually had children. And he didn't wander off. He's not a dingus like Peter, because at the time of his election, he was a widower with two children.
0: Oh, no. Yeah,
1: it's a it's sad. But it worked out for him, really, because then he gets to be Pope. But we know also that one of his children, at least, was a son, and his name was Gordianus, who also went on to be a priest. And one of the main reasons that we know this is that Gordianus also had children, and through this line comes another Pope. So... Pope Felix III is the great-great-grandfather of Pope Gregory I, who will be elected over a 100 years from Felix's election. That's pretty cool.
0: That is pretty cool.
1: And through this family lineage, he may also be related to another pope, a who will come before Gregory, but we're less certain about that tie, and there's reasons for that, but we will cover that in time not too far away. So, after the death of Simplicius, Felix was elected to be the next pope on March 13th of 483. And like we mentioned last week, the civil prefect of Rome, Basilius, had tried to influence the election by stating that right before he died and after, you know, when no one else could talk to him before he died, Simplicius had decreed that No successor should be consecrated for him until the elected bishop had been approved by King Odoacer.
0: Ah, yes.
1: Yeah, so the clergy had shut that down really quickly by citing an edict by, by Emperor Honorius that defended the church's right to consecrate the bishop of their own choosing without interference. So they're like, no, we're not having any of that. But there are some sources that wonder if this whole kerfuffle of Basilius trying to claim that Simplicius did this edict and the church trying to shut it down very quickly, that it may or may not have had an impact on this election. But we don't know for sure, and there are no records that say that Felix's election was contested. So we're just going to go with, in the end, they chose the candidate that they wanted, and that man became Pope. And that's Felix. And as the new pope, he is in a very unique position of being the first pope to have been elected without an emperor in the West. He was basically born and raised in an empire and then made pope in a kingdom. So he's, he is straddling the, the barrier of this huge, huge shift in our understanding of how Rome is situated. And yet, Felix opted to send word to the emperor in the East to inform him of his accession to the papacy, becoming the very first pope to write to the Eastern emperor to announce his accession. Traditionally, it had always gone to a Western emperor, but he's trying to do something to preserve that imperial tie, even though they're no longer part of the empire. Although, you know, on the other hand, it seems that Felix had the same sort of relationship with Odoacer that Simplicius had, in that the church was left alone to proceed as it always had. And Deborah Buton-McCoy's article on Felix stated simply, quote, Felix did not fear Odoacer during his papacy. And Odoacer is going to be king throughout the whole of Felix's papacy as well, so for the sake of the church and the local authority... Things were pretty steady on. But it's great that things are pretty steady on for the whole West Kingdom now, because as we saw in last week's episode, things are far from steady in the Eastern churches. So quick recap of what we covered last week. The year before Felix became Pope, the Eastern Emperor, who is now the only emperor, Zeno, had issued an edict called the Hanoticon, or the Act of Union, dealing directly with the Christological debate between the orthodoxy that had been established at the Council of Chalcedon and the Monophysites who continued to grow in influence in the East. And remember, this document had come about when the prominent Monophysite Peter Mongus had made good with the Bishop of Constantinople, Acacius, after Acacius had been spurned by the Pope, and then Acacius had refused to accept the Orthodox choice for the new Bishop of Alexandria, John Talia. So there's lots more of that in episode 49, if you want to catch up. So the Henoticon, as a legal attempt at revising the adherence to the decrees of the ecumenical councils of the Church, it declares that the Creed and the Canons of the Council of Nicaea of 325 with the additions made at the Council of Constantinople in 381, and then confirmed at Ephesus, was the only, quote, symbol of faith that was required or should be observed by the church. So in effect, it confirms the first three ecumenical councils by name, and then deliberately doesn't mention the fourth ecumenical council, Chalcedon, in the positive or the negative. It only gets that kind of at Chalcedon, or wherever, kind of remark. And Chalcedon, of course, if you're just tuning in and did not listen to that episode, was the council where the Chalcedonian definition of Christology had been made canon, deliberately outlining a hypostatic union of two whole and perfect natures of Christ without division or confusion. And as we saw last week, the Monophysites were more than happy to sign their assent to this new Hanoticon, because it didn't really require them to assent to the Chalcedonian definition that they had such a problem with. But this act of union, quote, had entirely the opposite effect than what was intended, and although it seemed like for a moment it was going to quell some of the tensions in the East, that was not how it actually worked out. The staunchly Orthodox clergy of Constantinople were appalled that their formerly Orthodox bishop, Acacius, had been part of this, like drafting the Henoticon, and now the clergy was absolutely refusing to recognize it. And they're not the only ones. The Orthodox bishops of Antioch and Alexandria also refused to sign their names to the Henoticon, and the emperor had them expelled. And this is where things get complicated, because the Monophysite, Peter Fuller, who had been re-banished by the Emperor Zeno when he'd first come back and undid Basiliscus's Enchicleon, he was now able to retake the See of Antioch because the Orthodox bishop Calendion had been banished for refusing to sign the Hanoticon. And Peter Mongus, who all the controversy in Alexandria had originally started over, was confirmed as the Bishop of Alexandria because he was a monophysite and he was totally happy with the Henoticon. Now, on the other side, it's kind of important to mention that extreme monophysites who refused to abide by the Henoticon compromise were also expelled. So it's not just a shot at orthodoxy here, but it's making waves for everyone. No one is happy. But all this had happened under Pope Simplicius, and he had not lived long enough to see the conflict come to any type of resolution. So it's not surprising that once he becomes Pope, the Hanoticon becomes Felix's first priority. His first official act as Pope was to officially repudiate the Hanoticon in a Roman synod that also excommunicated Peter Fuller. He then sent two papal legates, called Vitalis and Mycenas, to Constantinople, carrying letters to both the emperor and to Acacius. In the letters, Felix warned the emperor to, quote, learn divine things from those who are in charge of them, and not desire to teach them. Basically, he's telling him to butt the hell out. He also demanded that Peter Mongus be expelled from Alexandria, and that Acacius should come directly to Rome, to explain himself for supporting Peter Mongus in Alexandria and supporting the Henoticon like what are you doing you are supposed to be this orthodox just absolute giant over there in Constantinople what are you doing you must come and tell me but when the legates Vitalis and Mycenas arrived in Constantinople and they read the letters to the emperor and to the bishop outlining their purposes they were detained imprisoned, and then either bribed or forced to hold church services in communion with the heretics and forced to distinctly utter the name of Peter Mongus when they were reading the sacred diptychs.
0: Oh, I forgot about those sacred diptychs. Yeah,
1: so they had now just out loud professed the name of this extreme monophysite on the diptychs of honor. So it's very clear that in this action, Acacius has no intention of coming to Rome to answer these charges or settle anything with the Pope. And this news comes back to the Pope by an Acometi monk called Simeon. And the Acometi, by the way, is a monastic order who are characterized by their holding of constant church services day or night, which is why they are called the sleepless monks. And we're going to come back to the sleepless monks in time. But right now, they're being very helpful to the Pope. So Felix gets this news that Acacius is not coming. Your legates have been detained, and they are now holding communion with Peter Mungus. So he convenes another synod in the Lateran Basilica, this one on July 28th of 484, where he and 77 bishops pass sentences of deposition and excommunication on Peter Mungus and Acacius of Constantinople, and the two legates, Vitalis and Mycenaeus. So, you know, you went there, you had a job to do, and whether you were bribed or forced, you did that thing, and now you are excommunicated. The Acometi monks were the ones to carry these decrees back to Constantinople, and had them published within the city without being detected or detained, because if another legate had shown up, they probably would have been arrested. Unfortunately for the Pope, because Acacius was in so good with the emperor at the moment, the decree of excommunication and deposition didn't really have a whole lot of weight in the East. And through having that imperial influence, Acacius basically just kept his position. No, you can just stay the Bishop of Constantinople. And then he pulls a ballsy move by removing the Pope's name from the diptychs. Not the sacred diptychs. The Pope is no longer on the sacred diptychs.
0: How dare you redact him from the sacred diptychs? If there is not
1: a larger act of war, I have never heard of it. You can't just erase people. You just cannot do that. So yeah, this is basically where that Acacian schism that we mentioned last week officially starts. Acacius is excommunicated, but considering he's remaining in his post, The Church of Constantinople is broken with Rome and will be until 519. So this is a schism that is going to last 35 years. This is a big one. And this isn't even because Acacius lives for a super long time to keep this grudge going, because he dies within a year, max like two at most, after his excommunication. But his successor... Fravitas of Constantinople wrote to the Pope in an attempt to smooth things over by stating that, okay, we need to solve this little schism that you guys have had, it's been going on for like a year, let's just end it, I will not hold communion with Peter Mongus, so everything can go back to normal, except that that was a lie, and Pope Felix found out it was a lie, and so the schism doesn't mend at that point either. And then a new potential for reconciliation seemed to arise when Fravitus was succeeded by Euphemius after only four months. And he and Peter Mongus hated each other so much that they held like competing synods against one another. And then Peter Mongus died. So everything's looking really good for the church, you know, the pope and Euphemius to put the split with Constantinople to rest. But then as they're like negotiating exactly how this is going to happen. Euphemius refuses to remove Acacius's name and Fravitus's name from the diptychs. It's
0: so much trouble with the diptychs! (laughs) Jeez, the diptychs. They're
1: so problematic. Just leave the diptychs alone. Yeah, but no, they can't. They can't, and this is a sticking point for both of them. And unfortunately, like his predecessor, Felix is not going to live long enough to see this conflict through to a resolution. It's going to go on for like 35 years, so... Rome and Constantinople will not be reconciled until well after he's gone, and so we're going to come back to this over and over again, but we have to leave it here for now. And since that situation isn't going to go anywhere, we're going to move on to one of the other major events that happened in Felix's papacy, and this one has to do with North Africa. Like so many other areas of the empire that we've looked at in the past handful of episodes, Africa is one of the territories that has been effectively lost to the empire due to barbarian invasion.
0: Okay, the barbarians are still going about. Yeah. Burninating the countryside. Burninating the peasants. Burninating all the people. And the thatch-roof
1: cottages! (laughs) Which is probably very accurate. Yes. (laughs) So in the case of Africa the people who are burdenating the countryside, are the Vandals under their leader, Genseric, who had invaded and taken over the province to found a Vandal kingdom in 435. And from that point, they had expanded and expanded to the point where, as we saw, they had also sacked Rome in 455, as we discussed in Leo's episode, episode 47. And from the time of their initial invasion up to the present time of Felix III, The Vandals, who are Aryan Christians, were active persecutors of the Catholic Christians in their newly conquered territory. And all of this is documented by a contemporary African bishop of Baisachina called Vitor of Vita in his History of the Vandal Persecution. So it was extreme, and it's one of the worst cases of Christian persecution going on by other Christians at this time in history for a long time to come. Like, this is murder, rape, torture, and orders of suppression. Like, literally, the we could do an entire episode on the Vandal persecution in Africa because we have so much source material to read in detail, and... Maybe we will do that as a very downer bonus episode sometime in the future.
0: Ugh, that downer bonus.
1: Yeah, it doesn't sound uh, like very uplifting, but it would certainly be educational. So, anyways, under Genseric's leadership, and then his son Huneric, many Catholics had either been driven out of North Africa, had escaped North Africa, or had become lapsi. You know, so many people had just given in and accepted Arian theology and had been rebaptized by said Arians to save their lives and their livelihood. But that is a double no-no for the church. So in 484, when Huneric's nephew Guthamund succeeded to be the new king of the Vandals, and he maintained a considerably more lax and forgiving policy towards Hamusian Christianity, there were many of these Lapsi who wanted to seek readmission to communion. I mean, we haven't had a good old Lapsi situation in quite a while, but here we are! So, these Christians, who found very little in ways of sympathy from closer church patriarchs like Alexandria, appealed directly to the Pope, hoping for some sort of understanding for their plight, like, look, I was going to be murdered and tortured, I accepted Arianism, but now that I'm not going to be murdered and tortured for it i I would like to come back
0: we had a, we have a couple of those that are just like under duress. They have to go and um just go in completely in against their beliefs, but like we haven't had one of those in a long time.
1: yeah, it's been a very long time since we've had to deal with this like since the legitimization of Christianity, we have not had something on this level and you know looking back at those examples and the precedents that have been set. Felix is very receptive to their request and he convenes the Synod at Rome at the Lateran on March 13th of 487 to determine the circumstances and conditions of reception for the Lapsi. So no longer is it are we letting these people back or not, it's oh they're coming back, let's just figure out exactly how they're coming back. And these terms are pretty steep And they've been recorded in a letter written to the bishops of Africa, possibly Epistle 7, and are preserved in the book, The Bloody Theater, Martyr's Mirror of the Defenseless Christians, by Thelemon Jansun Brock, which is a name that is spelt as strangely as it sounds, so hopefully I got at least one of them right, and, uh... They're also preserved in the Irish ecclesiastical records. So I'm going to read you the four conditions of being received back as a lap sign. All right. One, if the persons rebaptized sincerely repent and do penance, they shall be received kindly and as usual by the priests. Two, the priests and ministers who have apostatized and have received heretical baptism shall do penance for life. Three. Other ecclesiastics, as monks, nuns, and seculars, when the apostize and are rebaptized, shall spend three years among the catechumens, seven years among the penitents, and make no vow for two years but pray among the seculars. But if they should die in this time, they shall be absolved by a bishop or a priest. Four. Those baptized or rebaptized by heretics shall not be permitted to fulfill any ecclesiastical office, but shall content themselves after they return with the consideration that they are received into the number of the Catholics. So, I mean, they're not terrible, but they are harsh.
0: Lifetime penance is a lot of penance.
1: Yeah, and like at most, if you had any kind of ecclesiastical role, you're still going to be looking at 12 years before you could join the church in any way close to what you're doing now. So... You know, this has an effort of bringing a wayward church back to the flock, and though it's, you know, kind of steep, not having penance requirements, as we've seen, has led to schism in the past. And then again, so has too harsh penance has also led to schism. So I think Felix has done a good job here of riding the middle line. But that's all he's going to have time to do, because Pope Felix died on March 1st of 492 of natural causes. This is a short, short Pope episode, so... I guess. Here we go. He's dead. He's dead. And he was buried in the Basilica of St. Paul's outside the walls, near his family members, the father, wife, and children, rather than predecessors of Popes. When I first started researching this section, nothing came up initially for burial location, and I was, like, academically verklempt because... That would be the first time where we didn't have at least a suggestion of where they were buried. So this took a lot longer to find than usual. And, you know, we, it took, it took me a while. I had to dig up like a different edition of the Liber Pontificalis than what I have and read through like four or five till I found something. So when I finally found it, it was a Liber Pontificalis entry that tells us that he was the only pope to be buried at St. Paul's and that this was probably because he had family there and it was otherwise a unusual burial place for a pope. So yeah, Paul's outside the walls, he's dead, and now we must rate him. Papatum infallium. So Felix is often quoted as saying, quote, Not to oppose error is to approve it, and not to defend truth is to suppress it, And indeed, to neglect to confound evil men when we can do it is no less a sin than to encourage them. This is cited on several websites, all from like the same place, you know, websites that all source from one particular source, but I couldn't find any original source for it. But it says a lot about how he starts his papacy, right? The first thing that he is going to do is fight hard against the Henoticon. And if he didn't, this could have steamrolled over the entire church. So he's got to get some credit for that. And then, of course, he has to get some credit for readmitting Christians from within the Vandal Kingdom in Africa with lots of penance, but he's still readmitting them and he's bringing that church back to the best that he can do. So there's there's some points to be had there, but it's not a lot.
0: Yeah, mm, maybe like a three? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I was thinking a three. I'm going to give him two... For fighting off the Henoticon, because that one's
0: kind of a big
1: deal, and we're going to be dealing with it for a while. And the stronger stances that popes take on this is going to be very important. And I'm going to give him one point for the Vandal Kingdom, so he gets a three from me as well. And that's a six in total for Papatum of
0: Fructus Prohibitum.
1: Not a thing. Yeah, no his family is totally legit, his children are totally legit, there's no sense of scandal to his name, and so he gets a zero.
0: Seculari impactum.
1: This is where we have to ask if we are going to hold it against him that he was unable to overcome the influence of the emperor in the east, you know, when the the Hanoticon gets passed, and then the bishops in Antioch and Alexandria get deposed, and Acacius's excommunication doesn't ever really become anything. But he's
0: not part of that empire. I don't know. If we have to start blaming them for things that are way out of their control, we have to like back up and start at the beginning again raiding here.
1: It's true, but there you could make an argument that by not having any sort of influence with the emperor, because we will see popes even though they're not part of the empire anymore. We will see them have influence on the Emperor. You could argue that it's not good for papal supremacy. Maybe just, like, a point. Okay, I don't want to give him anything in this category, so a point is fair. And so he's going to get a one for Seculari Impactum.
0: Facium Sanctus. Well, this one is different, for sure. He definitely has a very comic book style feel, so here you go. All right. So let me look at this man. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> He's younger than a lot of the ones we've had. What does he remind
1: me of? That I know, right? That, that very distinct kind of nose. It's kind of like a Simpsons nose and he is yellow.
0: It's not. No, it's like a very specific sort of like lumpy elephant nose. I don't even know, man.
1: <laughs> I know it's, it's making me think of something, too, and I don't know what it is. But that's the look of his face.
0: It's bad.
1: It is bad.
0: Take it away, I hate it.
1: Well, we have to rate it. What do you want to rate it? None. You want to give him a zero for it? god, it's bad. Okay, wow. I don't know, have we given a zero in this category before? I don't think we have, so wow, we're having a strong reaction to this. I'm going to give him a two just because I don't think it's that bad. It's distinctive, he's, you know, getting a look at it, so.
0: Uh, he can't look at anything but that.
1: True, so that gives him a 0.5 in this category. And now that we're done rating him, we have one more to look at. I don't know if you're going to have much to say on it, but it is very different. There is no crazy beard.
0: His nose is normal there, but also his mouth is sucking entirely in as though he has eaten a lemon. Or he's just really jolly. Mm, no, that looks like a lemon suck. It is kind of lemon sucky, isn't it? Yeah. It's down in the chin and like over on the side.
1: It's giving him a good cleft, yeah? Mm-hmm. Huh. That's weird. I don't know. It's not, it doesn't, it doesn't add anything for me in terms, this is very just a standard image. His expression, the kind of lemony suck, it's not enough to have a reaction to. So I think the first one is definitely going to produce a significantly larger reaction. So
0: yeah. Tempus Pontificus.
1: March 13th, 483 to March 1st of 492, which is nine years. A score of 2.25, which is crazy because we really don't have that much to say about him.
0: All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round!
1: Yes, he is a saint. His feast day is March 1st. He is not the patron saint of anything. But before we decide what he can be a patron saint of, there's more. He has a saint story. And that means it's time for... Miracles.
0: We haven't used that one in a while.
1: I know. And we're using it very lightly here because it's not really super miracle But here is his saint story. There is a very traditional story that in 550, Pope Felix appeared to his great-granddaughter, Triscilla, who is the aunt of Pope Gregory, who is his great-great-grandson, and he appears to her as an apparition to bid her to enter heaven after her life of fasting, virginity, and prayer. He comes to her and basically says, you're going to die soon. Come join me in heaven. She died very shortly after on Christmas Eve, apparently also seeing Christ beckoning to her in her last moments. Then shortly after, she, Trisilla, who has just passed away, appeared to her sister as a similar apparition, inviting her to celebrate Epiphany in heaven. And so she too died before Epiphany, which is January 6th. And both of these women are saints, so the the two great-great-granddaughters of Pope Felix saw an apparition that told them that they were going to die, and now they're saints. So yeah, that's his saint story. He miraculously informed people of their own death. Do you want to make him a patron saint of
0: anything for that? Final destination. <laughs>
1: of, like, the movie
0: franchise? Or, yes. like okay all right um how do we write that but you know he's gonna like come and he's gonna tell people they're gonna die and they're gonna be like we have to thwart death
1: true but that being said the people who he tells they're gonna die he's like you get to come to heaven come celebrate with me in heaven
0: so he's just the nicer version he's the friendly grim reaper (gasps) he is so how can we use that as a patron
1: sainthood? Is he still going to be the patron sainthood of Final Destination movie <laughs> franchise?
0: Or... <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Friendly Grim Reaper. I don't know what else to give him. I mean, we could go with it. I'm fine with it. His
1: new nickname can be the Friendly Grim Reaper. It will certainly get him more airtime than he's had in the past.
0: Yeah. I don't know if they still play the Final Destination franchise on anything. I have no idea. I I have
1: never seen a single one, so. Really? Yeah, I don't, I I can't sit through that kind of thing.
0: (sighs) I mean, they got real dumb for a while because it was mostly like, I don't know, head wounds. Like, one of them, one of them is mainly head wounds and wasn't that interesting. But the rest of them were okay.
1: I just don't do like super, super like slash em up horror films or horror films generally in general, especially if they're jumpy, which is, you know, to jump off track here. I hate jumpy movies, but if you are jumping out at me in a haunted house for real, I love it. So fair. I don't know how to explain that, but that's the thing. But now we need to look at his total score, now that he is the friendly Grim Reaper. Patron
0: saint of the Final Destination franchise.
1: It's not particularly impressive. He has scored a 10.75, which is not good. I mean, he scored less than Pope Hilarious, who you only wanted to venerate as a saint every four years. (laughs) So I must ask you... Is he papely enough or pizzazzy enough or a friendly enough grim reaper to scare you into giving him a papal bull? No, I'm sorry. No, he doesn't do it. He just really doesn't do it for me at all. On that note, we will say thank you to Rex Factor and Totalis Rankium for being our biggest supports as usual. And thank you for listening to us. If you've made it through... Our fifty episodes plus bonus episodes. We're in it now. Like I mean we are like a fifth of the way through the popes of the world of history. So that's crazy thought. It's episode fifty. Woo woo. So woo. Oh you sounded very enthused
0: there. Sorry, I yawned and also said a woo.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's been a lot of work. We're tired? I am so tired. But thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to everyone who is leaving us reviews and ratings or recommending us to your friends. We are definitely seeing an uptick in downloads. And we're about to hit another milestone really soon. And that's all thank you to you. So we will be back next week with another Pope man. And we could say thank you and goodbye. Bye.
0: Bye.